going to invite you to grab a seat, and I'm going to invite Doug Connolly to come up, and he is going to be uh, preaching to us today and leading us through our reaccreditation time. If you are unfamiliar with um, our church, we are part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. We call ourselves the Alliance for short. And um, I said this last week in my sermon, we are not autonomous, independent churches. We're part of a family of churches. And uh, Doug serves as our district superintendent. So the Mid-Atlantic District is Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. And all of the Alliance churches in that region, um, Doug supports uh, and oversees. And so jokingly, he's kind of like our bishop, but he's a district superintendent. So it's a little different. Uh, But that's who Doug is. And so, Doug, if you would lead us, that would be great. Thank you. Luke 19. I caught myself saying something that always used to make me laugh when I was sitting where you're sitting. The pastor would get up and say, turn in your Bible. Well, I could, but I can't fit in there to turn in my Bible. Uh, Let's open our Bibles to Luke 19. uh, And I'm going to start in verse 11 and read through verse 48. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money back to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy with a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. The master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you have not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You, You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take away, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found, found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side. Then they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. <clears throat> Father, we ask this morning that the Spirit of God would take this word, make it live for our lives, in our hearts, renew us in our worship, in our adoration, in our obedience. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the mid-2000s, I had a crisis. I was burned out. I was empty. I had nothing left to give. So after a conversation with our governing board, I took a leave of absence for eight weeks. There was a lot that went into that, external and internal, but at the end of the day, I had nothing left to give. During that time, I had to come to grips with this parable. And each time I read it, I could only see myself in the place of that servant who preserved what had been given to him. I had worked hard. I had given everything I had to give. But I could only see myself as that wicked and lazy servant. I was depressed and on the verge of hopelessness. How could I have given my all and still be displeasing to God? I remember very vividly speaking with a friend who knew me well and knew my work well. I explained to him my sense of utter defeat and a sense that even the scripture condemned me. He very gently reminded me that the servant that is described as wicked and lazy in this passage was so not because he didn't produce something, but because he didn't even try. He reminded me that as a pastor, my job was to set the table, not make people eat. <laughs> Those words were very uplifting in the moment, and from them I began to recover from a downward spiral. Yet I still struggled with the verdict that that passage rendered over my life and ministry. So I began to seek a deeper understanding of the text. It was hard for me to, to bring together the idea that uh, a, a good God full of grace and mercy could take everything that I had given out of sincerity and love and decide that that made me wicked. 
And I figured out along the way that I was misunderstanding something somewhere. And it drove me, it drove me to look deeper into the text and to seek a deeper understanding of it. In that search, I came across the writings of someone by the name of Dr. Kenneth Bailey, a scholar who spent most of his adult life in the Middle East and is regarded as maybe the uh, foremost expert in putting the scripture in its cultural context. I want to share today with you some things I learned from that and how it changed my life. I want to talk to you about a tale of two kings. <clears throat> the first king is depicted in the parable of the Minas, which we read to you. I, I got to tell you, this is one of the strangest beginnings to a parable that I know of in scripture. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Who does such a thing? You and I scratch our heads at that and wonder what that could possibly mean. But I tell you, the people standing around listening to Jesus knew exactly who that was. In fact, there were two people who did that. The first was Herod the Great, who made a trip to Rome in 40 B.C., seeking appointment as king of Judea. And you know he got it. <laughs> Later on, his son Archelaus made a similar journey in 4 B.C. for the very same purpose. Jesus, when he starts this parable, he's not talking about stuff people don't know. Um, there was a president of the United States who kept tripping as he went up the stairs. You know who I'm talking about. It's in the news. It's not some mystery, some strange thing. He's making a very powerful point about a very immediate context. You know the story well, and I just read it to you moments ago. Each guy got a mina. One guy made ten, one guy made five, one guy buried it. The point is, the instructions from the king, or the guy who was going to be made king, was take that money and put it to work. This man is especially an untrusted man, an unpopular man. And that's why many of his citizens went with him to Rome to say, please do not make this man king over us. Well, he's appointed king when he returns. He asks for an accounting. You know the story. One got ten, one got five, and one got, had, had his uh, talent, his mina buried. The man says something very interesting. I knew you were a man who reaped where you did not sow, or you take out where you did not put in. And so I buried it so I could give you back what is yours. I returned it to you without loss. You have to understand that the, those minas, that money, whatever value it was, wasn't given to those servants. It wasn't theirs. It was still the king's. They'd received it as something in trust. When you borrowed something in the ancient world, you were obligated to return it in the condition in which you received it. If you remember the Old, Old Testament story about the, the man who borrowed the axe and the axe head fell in the water. Uh, and the prophet came by and made the axe head swim. And so the man was able to retrieve it and return it. Otherwise, he was obligated to replace it. If he could have afforded to replace it, he wouldn't have had to borrow one. <laughs> Uh, these are very difficult circumstances socially and economically. 
Now, we tend to hear this story through the lens of, or the filter of capitalism. We see the king and his two servants as good because they took what was entrusted to them and made more. And we tend to see the third guy just like we hear Jesus tell it in the parable that he's wicked and lazy. But that's not how the people of Jesus' day would have heard this parable at all. This king behaves like Herod and his sons, both hated and brutal men. Men who leveled confiscatory taxes on people and abused their power. Right from the beginning, these people hear this story and they say, this is not a good story. You see, the people of Jesus' day believed something very different about economics than we do. They believed in what is called a limited good. That all the wealth in the world is a fixed amount and it's already been distributed. In their minds, the only way for a person to gain more wealth was to take it from somebody else. So getting wealthy was always the result of wickedness. You had to take someone else's if yours was to increase. You get the contrast here? In their mind, it's the king and those servants that are wicked. In the king's mind, it's the servant who's wicked because he didn't get more. In other words, because he didn't steal. From the perspective of those people hearing the parable, it was a story about how things are. People with power abuse those without power and take from others in order to increase their own wealth. These two servants who the king blessed are seen as collaborators with this wicked king. In the mind of the people, it's the third man who's the real hero. He secured what had been entrusted to him and he lost none of it. He returned the wealth to its rightful owner. In other words, he had acted with honor. In the hands of a wicked ruler, though, honor is of little value. And he is stripped, <clears throat> pardon me, he's stripped of what has been entrusted to him. This parable affirms what people thought. You can almost hear them saying, yep, that's the way it is, all right. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. There is no fairness. There is no justice. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what it looked like to be a king, to be a person of power, to be a ruler. You ruled for your own benefit. I believe that while we look at this story and sometimes look at it in isolation from what's around it, I believe that when Luke put these stories together, he wanted to show the readers a second story as well. It's the second story of another king. A king with some really surprising differences. In verses 28 to 48, we see the story of this second king. It's the day after Shabbat, the first day of the week. Just five days before Jesus was to be crucified. It was a warm spring day just before Passover and Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem. The way he enters makes it clear that he's offering himself as king, but what a different king he would be. When Jesus comes, he comes in humility. The text says he came riding on a young donkey, one that had never been ridden before. He doesn't come on a horse, the symbol of power. By the way, just put some context here. Um, my neighbor, our, our next door neighbor in the last place we lived, was retired from the United States Army as, a, as, as cavalry. 
That meant he drove tanks. <laughs> uh, the horse was cavalry. It was the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of a tank. Uh, you come in on a horse. You mean business. You come in on a horse. You're taking over. Jesus doesn't go in on a horse. He goes on, on this donkey, this small animal, just large enough to carry one person. The majority of people in Jesus' day were poor. And when I say that, I mean most people in Jesus' day had to strive every single day to find enough food to eat that day. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have a pantry full of dry goods. They had whatever was available that day. They ate it, and the whole thing started over again the next day. This king identifies with them because he doesn't have a horse. He doesn't have a donkey of his own. He has to borrow one. I recall watching with great interest the selection of Pope Francis. I was particularly struck by two of his very early actions. The first was right upon his election, the person who was emceeing that meeting urged the newly elected pope to come to the platform, take his seat, and address the cardinals. Francis refused. He remained on the main floor with them and addressed them as brothers. When it came time to return from the Sistine Chapel, Pope Francis refused to take the limousine that was waiting for him. Instead, he chose to ride the bus with the cardinals. He said, I came by bus, I will return by bus. Whatever you think of him and whatever else he is, he is a humble man. When Jesus comes, he comes in humility. He doesn't come with force. He doesn't impose himself on anyone. He doesn't come demanding tribute. He simply offers you himself and his leadership. When Jesus comes, he also comes with grace. As he rides into the city of Jerusalem for the final time, he rides down the slope of the Mount of Olives, and it begins to ascend up the valley to the eastern gate, and he weeps. He weeps. When Jesus comes, he comes with grace born of deep and profound love. He comes to the place of his execution, not as a man resigned to his fate, but as, the, as a husband willingly laying down his life for the one he loves more than his own life. Have you ever thought about the idea that perhaps while you were away from God, while you were out doing your own thing and trying to run your life the way you thought it ought to go, have you thought about that perhaps Jesus was weeping over you, longing for the day that you would know what would bring you peace? Perhaps Jesus is weeping today as you're living with some of the very painful consequences of the choices you made. When Jesus comes, he comes with humility, he comes with grace, but he also comes with passion. After humbly entering this city over which he just wept, he comes to the eastern gate and looks into the main entrance of the temple and what he sees shocks him. For those of you that may not be familiar, the temple was composed of three major sections. The court of, the, of, the court of men, which was re reserved for Jewish males. The court of women, which was re reserved for Jewish women. 
Those two sections were what Ticketmaster would call premier seating. <laughs> if you're going to buy a spot there, you paid extra money to be up close to the action. The third section, the third major section, was known as the Court of the Gentiles. It was a large area outside of those premier seats for those who wanted to worship God but were not Jews and so therefore had no real reserved place in the temple. These were the cheap seats, the seats furthest from the holy place. On the day Jesus arrives in the court of the Gentiles, it has been turned into a bazaar. There was an ancient version of an ATM, a place where people could exchange the currency of their homeland for the proper temple currency. Much of the area looked like a stockyard as people exchanged currency and then used the proper currency to buy a suitable sacrifice. Jesus overturns those money changers. He drives out those selling animals. You see, this was the only place in the nation to come and worship if you were a Gentile. And what had happened? The primary stakeholders, the Jewish people, had co-opted it for themselves. Jesus is passionate about whatever it is that's, that, that is necessary Whatever needs to be removed that's keeping people from God. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. He's unwilling to allow anything, even religion, to get in the way of his mission. I've had to wonder sometimes if that isn't the reason some churches close. Because they became a barrier to people coming to Christ. In telling this story as he does... Luke offers us a choice between two kings. A king who rules for himself, who uses his subjects as a means to advance his own prosperity and consumes their very life. Or we can choose the king, instead of consuming life, who offers us life and is willing to lay down his own life for us. This king never imposes himself, but offers his life his grace, and his leadership. The first king offers to accept us based on our performance. If we do well, we will get rewarded. And too often, we live like that's the king we serve. When things get difficult, we work harder and longer. And we begin to question ourselves and our motives and even our call. We worship a God of grace on Sunday, but we live in a performance play on the rest of the week. The second king offers us grace. Our performance will never take us where we want to go. The longing of our soul will never be satisfied as a byproduct of our own efforts. True and lasting peace is only found in following the leadership of Jesus. You see, the contrast in the parables is not between the three servants, which is how I read that thing for a long, long time. The contrast, the two contra true contrast, is between the two kings. If you choose to follow the performance plan, it will consume your life, rob you your joy, and often leave you a bitter and empty shell of a person. You'll resent your call, you'll resent your service, you'll resent everything that God or other Christian people are asking of you. 
Jesus came to bring life. And as God applied the salve of this scripture, rightly understood, to my life, healing returned. Energy and vision were restored. I was able to release a sense of responsibility for getting results. My friend was right. My job was to set the table, not make people eat. <laughs> I was more focused on what would reflect obedience to Jesus in the situations I faced. I still worked hard, but it was easier for me to leave the results up to God. I want to urge you, in this moment, when you transition from a, a redevelopment church to a fully accredited church, to choose today to turn away from the performance-driven models. Jesus won't like you any better if you work yourself to death. He loves you perfectly, he cannot love you more, and he will not and cannot love you less. It's not about that. It's about resting and trusting him. Choose the king of glory. Rest in the work that he has already done. Walk with him and find life. Real, deep, soul-satisfying life and wholeness in his leadership in your life. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this, these two stories of two different kinds of kings. One who loves us and one who wants to use us. One who lays down his life for us and the other who expects us to lay down our life for him. We come to you today and say, oh Lord Jesus, though everything in life says we are rewarded based on our performance, let the king of glory show us himself in all of his wisdom, grace, mercy, and compassion. And may we find real rest in him. And Father, I pray for this congregation as they take this monumental step forward. That they would do so with the expectation that they would continue to serve the king of glory in a way that would allow him to advance his kingdom in his time and in his way. Father, I pray that you would direct them to people they could love just as surely and as deeply as Jesus loves those people. And may they find in you that deep, soul-satisfying relationship that allows them to know you in your fullness, in your nearness, and in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.